You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. While it's not brain surgery, is a phrase we hear all the time to describe manageable tasks. But what if it really is brain surgery? What motivates some young physicians to pursue a career that's title is synonymous with being complex, exclusive, and extremely difficult? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Greenwich, Connecticut, is my guest, Dr. Katrina Furlick, the first woman admitted to the neurosurgery residency program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and the author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. Welcome, Dr. Furlick. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Furlick, in your book, you muse about the qualities necessary to be a neurosurgery resident. And some of the qualities are not surprising, intelligent, hardworking, confident. But I have to say that it was the stamina required of residents that I found most striking. Describe a typical day for a junior neurosurgery resident. My first caveat is that now with the new rules, they are limited to 80-hour work week. So that's a bit of a change from when I went through that. But At the time that I was going through residency not too long ago, we would usually get up around 4.30 or 5 or so. We'd have to see patients in the ICU before we rounded with the team. Our rounds with the team would start at about 6 or so, and then we'd all eat breakfast at 7, and during breakfast we would hear about the floor patients from the intern, and then we'd all scramble off to the operating room starting at 7.30. And so we'd basically have to take care of all of the patient problems the non-surgical problems very quickly in the early morning hours before we got to the full day of operating. And then like, likewise, at the end of the day, we'd have to take care of all the, the non-surgical problems again on the floor in the ICU in the evening rounds, and that could stretch out anywhere from 8 o'clock at night to 9 o'clock at night. So it, it would all depend on, on the volume. And it was obviously tiring, but it was the sort of thing that you just kind of got used to. Yeah, and the thing that's striking is it's just unrelenting. It keeps going and going. Right, right, exactly. In your day, which was not very long ago, maybe just a decade ago, how many hours a week do you think you were putting in? It could be as many as 100 or sometimes even more. And the the funny thing is that one of my colleagues in residency once gave a talk to the faculty and presented how many hours he had worked on a typical uh, typical week. And the faculty was up in arms. They said, this is crazy. I can't believe you're telling us this. This, this can't be true. And all the residents said, wait a minute, this is true, almost with disbelief as to how many hours we worked, which is partly what inspired, you know, around the country, limiting the work week to 80 hours a week, which for many specialties is a significant reduction in hours. The funny thing is there are You'd think it would be all all good, but there are pros and cons to limiting those hours, and and I've recently read some some papers about that. Continuity of care may be compromised, but obviously the experience of the resident may be better in, in the fact that they're well-rested. So there, there are good things and bad things to limiting those hours. Right. You learned early on in your residency that for your specialty, it's better to do too much for a patient as a neurosurgical resident, than too little. It's perceived as weakness to proceed in a temperate manner. Yeah, you know, there are all sorts of, that's part of what I wanted to expose. There's a, there's a kind of a surgical mentality and surgical culture that tends towards, if there's a question, being more aggressive rather than less aggressive. Now, that's obviously depending on the surgeon, but in general, there was a, a surgical dictum, an error of commission is better than an error of omission. In other words, better to do too much than too little. And that was kind of a mantra that we always worked by. If we thought maybe this patient could benefit from X, we would do X, even if there was a question. Obviously, you know, that's part of the judgment of surgery. And with experience, you know how much to do and how little to do. But 
if in doubt, we would do more because doing too little was was a sign of weakness, potentially. Mm -hmm. Describe for us the dramatic rites of passage necessary for the neurosurgery resident. Well, the interesting thing is that, obviously, learning to do surgery is a gradual phenomenon. So in the very beginning, you know, as a medical student, you're literally, you may just be watching and then slowly you're scrubbing in, then you're holding a retractor, then you're doing less important parts of the case until finally when you're a fully-fledged resident and then a chief resident, you can do the entire operation from start to finish with, with very little supervision. But there are moments, little punctuated moments of that evolution as a resident where you are doing something for the first time by yourself. And I, I talk about some of those cases of mine in the book where, for example, I was dealing with excessive bleeding in the brain for the very first time. I had seen other people handle it. I had had my hand in helping deal with it, but it's the first time where I was in the room by myself and the attending was helping somebody in another room. And obviously, I knew all the right moves, but it is different when you're the one doing it all by yourself. And I just talk about what goes through your mind and, and, and how you handle that. But you do rise to the occasion, and that's the evolution process as a resident, and it's, and it's pretty gratifying at the end of the day when you realize, you know what, I just did that by myself, and I can do it again, and I've reached that hurdle. You have a fondness for the tools used in your job, and tell of a special drill called a perforator that's just amazing. It's funny, because neurosurgeons wouldn't consider it amazing. It's, we use it all the time, but it is funny when you when you talk about these everyday things to other people, they, they find them interesting. And it's a drill that makes about a nickel-sized hole in the skull, and it stops once it's gone through the full thickness of the skull. And so there's kind of a rite of passage for interns, for example, when we hand over that drill and we say, okay, you, you get to do the first burr hole, so to speak. You know, burr hole just means the first, you know, the, the holes that are made in the skull. And it's not so much that we're, we're trusting the intern, it's more that we're trusting the drill because we know that it's going to stop and not go through any, any more delicate layers. It's, it's a, a quick way of making a hole in the skull, and usually we have to make three or four of them before we actually take a piece of the bone off. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Katrina Furlick, author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. Dr. Furlick, we're talking about a tool that is perhaps mundane to the neurosurgeons who use it, but interesting to, to those of us not familiar with these tools. You call the 3D image guidance systems the kind of cool technology that a layperson expects us to use, but it is cool technology. It's very interesting. Can you tell us about it? Sure. It's a technique that really has been uh, very, very popular in the past decade or so, but previously unavailable. It's a way of having a wand in the operating room where we can point to the patient's head before we start the surgery, and it'll show us exactly where we are in relation to the patient's MRI scan. So, for example, let's say somebody has a, a tumor that's a few inches deep inside their head. Where do you make the incision? Well, the, the head is round. It's, it's, it's not that easy, believe it or not, to point to where the tumor is just looking at the outside of the patient's head. So we can use this wand. It'll show us where we are in the MRI scan, and we can center the incision directly over the tumor, which means we can limit the incision, limit the bone window, uh, the bone flap, and be directly over the area of interest. And then as we're taking the tumor out, we can use the wand again to point inside the tumor, and it'll help us tell how much have we taken out, how deep are we. And that's the sort of thing that in previous generations, we would have to use our judgment and knowledge of anatomy and not have necessarily the same precision and assurance inside the brain. 
you do a nice job in the book of, of sort of going back and forth between um, the mechanics of the job and then, you know, other issues like social issues. And you mentioned that social issues are, are a drain for the neurosurgery resident. And although you can't focus on them exactly because you're so busy with, with other things, they remain. And it seems that residents are in a position that where they can ignore these issues sort of as they, as they go about their work. Is the neurosurgeon ever forced to face the social issues of his or her patients? I don't want to sound overly harsh in this way, but in residency especially, you're overwhelmed by a number of problems that you have to deal with. And some of them are life-threatening. Somebody in the ICU may need a, a drain put in their head at the bedside immediately, but at the same time you're getting paged by a nurse on the floor because somebody's constipated or you're getting paged by the social worker because somebody can't make it into rehab because of their, their insurance policy. So you have all sorts of issues. And you have to try to prioritize between the life-threatening ones and then the more mundane or ones that can wait. And, and day after day, you tend to get frustrated by the social issues, the ins- issues related to insurance, or Mr. So-and-so's wife wants to talk to you again. Well, I just talked to her an hour ago. You know, she wants to talk to you again, that sort of thing. They're important. They're certainly very important when it comes to speaking to families or what insurance coverage somebody has. But as a resident, they tend to wear you down because you're more focused on the life-threatening issues that you have to deal with first. So it's one of those things where, as a resident, you're, and as a doctor out in practice, you're dealing with a whole spectrum from the most mundane-seeming to the most life-threatening, and it's easy to get frustrated by the, by the smaller issues. Now, as a practicing neurosurgeon, do you find that you do spend more time, say, with anxiety management? That's one of the nice things about being out in practice. Obviously, you're still busy, but you have a little more time to sit down one-on-one with your patients and try to explain what they're scared about and try to explain what's foremost on their mind, whereas in residency, you're just running around like a chicken with their head cut off trying to, trying to put out fires here and there because you're dealing with the patients of many different attendings all at once. And so uh, out in practice, you can focus just on your patients, and it is more sane, and you do have the time to spend dealing with patients' anxieties, which are you know, equally important to the surgery itself. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Katrina Furlick, author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. You mentioned that the competition for fellowship training in subspecialty fields is not that intense, with the exception of spine surgery. This is the hot fellowship now. Why? It, well, it's funny. Things tend to come and go in surgical specialties, and There are many different ways you can specialize, subspecialize within neurosurgery at large. So you can become a pediatric neurosurgeon, an epilepsy, you know, what's called a functional neurosurgeon, uh, spine neurosurgeon. There's all the different specialties across the field. And at different times in history, different fellowships are, are more or less attractive. And right now, spine surgery in general tends to be kind of the hot way to to subspecialize in neurosurgery. And partly that's because there's a lot of innovation going on. There's a lot of advancements in the type of instrumentation, you know, the the hardware, so to speak, that we put in patient's spine. It's a rapidly developing field. Whereas other specialties, for example, vascular neurosurgeons who deal with aneurysms and AVMs, there's a little less interest in that from the surgical standpoint because a lot of our business is now going to the radiologists who do minimally invasive ways of, of treating those same problems through through the blood, you know, through the vascular system. So it just depends on on the kind of the politics and the 
technology at the time. You preferred a fellowship in epilepsy surgery. I did. I did that during my training. So it was actually during one of my so-called, you know, one of my research years of residency, I decided to do a whole year of epilepsy surgery. And the main reason was that my main reason for becoming a neurosurgeon was I was fascinated with the mind, the brain as well, but the mind and, and cognition. And epilepsy surgery was the closest that I could think of to actually dealing with the mind, per se, as opposed to just the brain as a physical object. So that seemed to meld with my interests. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Katrina Furlick, clinical assistant professor at Yale University and author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Furlick. Great. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.